you know, in my meditations, I was asking the Lord, I said, what precisely, how, what should we be focusing on this time of year? You know, we celebrate this time of year as the observed birthday of Jesus. Now, most of us educated folks know that Jesus was most likely not born around this time of year, and we know the history behind why we celebrate it and this time of year and all that good stuff. But then the Lord gave me a very simple principle. He said, share this with the people. And so we're going to go, I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox for myself, because I'm, I'm going to try to preach this a little bit. Uh, this is going to be new for me, because I'm a, I'm a long, methodical teacher type. You know this. But there are those times when you just have to remind yourself right. and encourage yourself about who you are and what Christ has done for you. And I was in the grocery store. Uh, there's a lady in, in one of the grocery stores that we go to regularly that uh, <laughs> my wife's laughing because she knows what I'm talking about. And uh, every time she sees, we're so friendly to each other, you know. And uh, she comes up to me a few days ago. I mean, I'm checking out. And she walks over to me and she says, I got to tell you this. I'm walking out. I have my card. I'm leaving. I've already paid and I'm leaving. She comes over to me and she grabs my arm and she says, I have to tell you this. She says, I was reading the other night. Do you know what they did to Jesus? <laughs> she said, when he was crucified, did you know he was naked? <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I do. I said, that's the shame that he bore for us. She said, oh, my Lord. She said, I never knew. She said, I've... I've read the story, heard the story a million times. She said, I never knew he didn't have no clothes on on the cross. <laughs> she said, I just had to put my hands up and thank God. She said, I, she said I'm so glad he died. And so we just had ourselves a little praise party in the, at the uh, checkout line at the grocery store the other night. And we, I got loud with it. I was like, that's why, you know, I'm, 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 I take opportunity to preach, you know. So but she, just, she just came up to me with this look in her eye. Uh, she was like, I was just so grateful. And I said, that's right. Amen. I said, every so often, you got to remind yourself and be grateful. Right. Now, she's much older. She's, she's in our parents' generation, you know. She didn't she heard the story her whole life and never noticed that. Come on. And she had this wonder in her eye, like, I can't believe he did that for us. And I said to myself, I said, I wonder how long. She's a born-again lady. She's religious at the very least, you know. I said, she can still be mesmerized or captured by the reality of what Christ did for us all those years, you know? So sometimes you can get stale, you know? And I was talking last week about going back to the well, how the Lord has been, the Holy Spirit has been pulling me back to the well. Uh, because sometimes you can, be, you can be dehydrated and not thirsty. Let that one settle for a second. You can be dehydrated and not thirsty. You can get used to the sensation of being dehydrated to where it becomes your normal, and you're not even thirsty anymore. Where you have a little bit of something to drink and your thirst gets quenched, but you don't have enough moisture for your body to be healthy. And you don't sense it all the time. Now, if you're used to being properly hydrated, consistently and constantly. You drink enough water throughout the day, every day, to stay properly hydrated for your size, your weight, your age, your activity level, all that good stuff. When you get dehydrated, you notice. Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. 
you notice I don't I didn't have enough water today. If I get to the end of the day and I didn't have enough water, I notice it. I, it's like when your car get old oil or oil run out. It don't, you don't perform as well. And a lot of the things that we think are other issues, a lot of it's dehydration. You have headaches a lot, probably dehydrated and don't realize it. I'm not trying to be a medical practitioner here. I'm not diagnosing nothing. But proper hydration solves. As a mechanic, the first thing they taught us was 90% of your vehicle's problems are fluid-based. Check and change all your fluids first, then start messing with mechanical stuff. Because most people don't change their fluids regularly enough. They don't change them seasonally. They don't put the right weight of fluid in it, so it has the wrong weight of oil, so it doesn't lubricate as well. Most of the time, you have fluid-based problems. Well, your body is a big mechanical system. Most of your problems are fluid-related. Check and change all them regularly and see what happens. <laughs> Give it 30 days and then come back and check it again. That's right. Uh, but... Spiritually, you can be dehydrated and not be thirsty. You don't feel how empty you are until you start putting pressure on a system that you thought should be, that you think should be performing at a certain level. And then you realize, oh man, I'm not as full as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. Now, in ministry, we can experience that too because we have to have enough for us and enough for y'all. And we can be full on one end and dehydrated on the other. Or when God wants to expand and increase, he'll, he'll say, all right, the capacity you're currently carrying isn't high enough to go further than where you are. And to go further, you have to have a bigger engine, higher, bigger fuel tank. You got to be able to do more work. So the Lord called me back to the well. He said, come back to the well and stay. So I'm still at the well, like I said last week. But every, this past couple of weeks, these trips to the well have been very enlightening. They've been very, they've been resensitizing me to the voice of the Holy Spirit in a way that I have not experienced before. And I'm excited of where we're going. I got big plans for 2024, you know. Uh, I have to be able, I'm in the unenviable position of, having to assist Pastor Diana in whatever, she'll call me at nine o'clock in the morning and say, the Lord said, I want to do this. And then I have to figure out <laughs> how to work with her and the Lord to make that a reality. Because part of my responsibility is to take as much pressure away from her as possible. But that pressure got to go somewhere. So <laughs> part of the equipment that God has given me is to bear that pressure so that she can focus on what God has given her to do. Uh, and so you have to be full all the time. Part of filling up on the word and, f and being full at the well is thanksgiving. If you are not a naturally thankful person, if you need a lot of stimulation to be thankful, if you need a lot of good things to happen in a row, for you to be thankful, you're not cut out for ministry because your time at the well depends heavily on your ability to be thankful when nothing has changed for you, when you see nothing, when, when everything is just as bad as it was yesterday. Your thankfulness has to be double. And your ability to be thankful by choice, to be grateful by choice, to dig until you touch God in your thanksgiving 
is a powerful spiritual skill that you must have at work to minister on any level, not just pulpit, but in whatever area you are a minister of. Because like you talked about last time, every person in this church is in the same ministry. It's not some of us are in ministry and we minister to you. That's actually not how the church was set up. The church was actually set up where we minister to you, then we minister together with you to somebody else. Then they come in and then we all minister together to the next person. And we multiply ourselves. And religion created a hierarchical structure. So you got three or four people in ministry and then everybody else are just perpetual consumers of ministry. Mm -hmm. come they come to church and they just consume ministry and they put all the spiritual responsibility of ministry on those three or four people at the top. And then if they don't get what they feel they want, they complain, they go somewhere else. And so that hierarchical structure has taken over now, that doesn't mean there is an order. There is a hierarchy in the kingdom of God and in the church. There is divine order. There are leaders and at various levels. That's true. I'm not destroying that. But this consumer mentality where the church is concerned, where it's more my church or it's more Pastor Diana's church than it is your church, see, that's wrong. Amen. That's right. It's just as much your church. That's right. It's 100% just as much your church, and you have just as much of a right to activate the same anointing as anybody else in the room. You know, I was talking to my wife the other night, and I'm, I'm off on this, this isn't even my message, but I was talking to my wife the other night, and we were talking about how God does not give any one person all the graces. The only person who has all the graces is Jesus. Amen. And by the Holy Spirit, when he sent the Holy Spirit back to us, he split the graces amongst those 120 people. And every time they went out, it split more. He did not give all the graces to one person. That way, we need each other. We have to have each other. Because there's a grace on Jalen that I don't have. And there's a grace on Michaela that my wife doesn't have. And there's a grace, there's a grace on Amari that he doesn't even know he has yet. God has selected a grace for every single one of us. And when we come together, we get to feed off each other's grace. And it's not all preaching. That's we define ministry as just preaching all the time. Mm -hmm. And so if you're good at preaching, you think you got enough grace. Mm -hmm. But somebody got to have a grace for business. Somebody got to have a grace for organizational skills, leadership. Mm -hmm. Somebody has to have a grace. Somebody knows how to drive a car under the anointing. Mm -hmm. Come on. Somebody has a grace for driving vehicles better than somebody else. I wouldn't say that's me. You know, I, I, I can drive anything, but I might not drive it as fast as some people want me to drive it. But usually those people are just terrible drivers. I'm a very good driver. You know, people that speed all the time get mad at you if you drive the speed limit. And they feel justified in being mad at you because they've gotten used to going too fast everywhere. So if you're doing 45 and a 45, they get annoyed as if you're supposed to do 60. And how dare you do 45? I don't understand that. I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't understand it, but I ain't judging nobody. I got a few faces in my mind. I ain't going to say who it is. But <laughs> Now, see, baby, if you had to say it nothing, they wouldn't have known I was talking about you. 
actually, I was not talking about you, but now I'm talking about you. Uh, so, you know, everybody has a grace. And it's not, some are more visible than others, but none are more important than the others. And when you put all those graces together and everybody is secure in the grace God is giving them, you can make anything happen. You can win the world with 120 people. Because that's all Jesus had was 120 people, and that's all he needed. So anyway, why do we celebrate this season? Now, traditionally, we celebrate it as the birth of Christ, because if you got to celebrate somebody's birthday, it might as well be his. It had better be his. But the Lord said to me, he said, did you notice what I did when my son was born? He said, I celebrated. And I said, well... Okay, let's go there. So you go to Luke chapter 2. We know the story. We've read the story since we were kids, some of us. And those of us that didn't, I feel bad for your childhood. You just didn't have it as good as I did, I guess. But even if you won't say you've heard this story, but this story is everywhere. Luke chapter 2. And I like Luke's account of it because it's, biogra it's biographical and it's very detailed. And Luke did a very good job at chronicling the perspectives of other people, not just Mary and Joseph, and their experiences on the night that Christ was born. And, you know, Pastor Diana, I, I, I was talking to her yesterday, yesterday or Monday, and I was, I was, I was telling her, I was saying, you know, the, what she was saying about the wise men and all that stuff. See, the more that's preached in the church, the more that'll change culture. Because art comes along and re-educates you to a lie. You know, they drew the wise men at the manger for so long that we just started, that's the story. And the Bible never said it. It's not the Bible story. It's never been in the Bible that way. But you see more pictures of wise men at the manger than you see pictures of the how the Bible wrote it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But... And because some information can seem to be non-critical, we just let it slide. We just live with it. We make movies about it. We sing songs about it. You know, we come up with all of these theories, and then anywhere where there's not a clear explanation of something, we just make up the poorest explanation. I listened to an archaeologist, a professor of archaeology, uh, talking about who the wise men most likely were. You know, and very scholarly lady, but clearly influenced by the common idea that this was three poor guys with a box. In spite of the wealth of archaeological evidence to the contrary, it was just easy to come up with a theory that these were three, uh, three guys who knew the legend of the star and decided they would take up the, the cause of traveling for two years through the desert to find where the star was shining. And they brought gifts because the legend said that these gifts were supposed to come. And she went to Isaiah to try to, she pieced it together real nice, but it was, a, it was such a stretch. The whole thing was made out of rubber, man. I was like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be easier if it were really three kings? Or the number of kings that Pastor Diana said won't just three? But, but that made more sense than what she was coming up with. But she made what she was coming up with make more sense just so that Jesus could stay poor. Exactly. 
because the narrative that Jesus was poor and that these were just three guys who scraped together a little box of gold and frankincense and myrrh and traveled for two years alone on a camel to find this two-year-old just it didn't conflict with the common religious ideology and people don't want Jesus to be rich so bad they don't want him to be influential and wealthy so bad that they'll just rewrite history for it. Even though the Bible, if you just read it with no preconceived notions, it's very hard to make Jesus poor. Exactly. I read the whole thing. You read the whole thing if you, if you were obedient. <laughs> I've read it several times. It's very hard to paint Jesus as poor. He had too many rich friends to be a beggar. He lived in a very rigid class-based system. There was not a lot of upward mobility. You were born rich or you were born poor. And if you were born poor, you were probably poor forever unless somebody gave you a lot of money. But you didn't go up and down. And if and poor didn't hang out with rich. Didn't matter what miracles you performed. You didn't, they did not. They lived in different circles. Jesus wasn't walking around begging homeless. I heard one popular religious artist, I won't call a Christian artist, but religious artist, talk about the extreme poverty of Jesus. He used the word extreme poverty. I said, wow, would that even be necessary to win people? Extreme poverty? I mean, did he have nothing? <laughs> you know, if Jesus were a beggar, uh, no one would have questioned him for not paying taxes because beggars didn't pay taxes. You didn't tax beggars because they were beggars. If you were poor and had nothing, you didn't get taxed. Only the rich pay taxes. It's kind of the same way it is today. Uh, <laughs> contrary to what they tell you, most of your taxes are paid by the rich or at least the upper middle class and up. Uh, most poor people live to a point where they take money out of the system they don't put back. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. I feel my Pastor Dan getting on me. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to keep it purple. Uh, <laughs> some of y'all, y'all get that later. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it purple here. But back then, they taxed the wealthy because they were the only ones who could afford it. So if Jesus was a beggar, there would have been no question. Even Peter was upset by the question. He came to Jesus and said, "There." coming to us saying that you don't pay your taxes. So, and Jesus didn't reply, well, I'm poor. That would have been the perfect time to reply with, I'm poor. That would have been the perfect time to squash the whole thing. But Jesus replied, I'm not paying them my money. My father paid for it. Go and catch the fish. The money will be in the fish mouth. And that's what happened. A very wealthy young man came to Jesus and said, Master, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the boy was so attached to his money. We know this because when Jesus gave him the answer, he walked away offended. So the boy was clearly materialistic in nature. But yet he was willing to surrender himself to the advice of the poorest man in the village. I'm going to let you let that sit for a second. Because if Jesus had nothing, he would not have been attractive to this kid. And you can call that conjecture, but there's more evidence for that than, than the opposite. If Jesus had nothing, 
a guy who's, who is as materialistic as that kid was would not even bother wasting his time with Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't the only guy standing around saying stuff that sounded kind of spiritual. But Jesus was the richest guy doing it. That's why he had a following, just like today. You'll listen to a celebrity say a little bit about God all wrong because he got a Rolls Royce. But a broke preacher with the truth can't get you to come to church. This ain't supposed to be about money, but this is supposed to be about why we celebrate Christmas. But the Lord told me, he said, heaven celebrated when Christ was born. And here's why. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read it. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. All the world is figurative, but almost literal, because Rome had conquered most of the known world at that point. So not all technically the world, but all the world that was under Roman rule. And Rome was a very large empire. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. I love Luke for writing these little details because he's, he's writing it as a historian. He's chronicling it so that he's giving us different points so that historically you know it's accurate. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Now Joseph was in Nazareth, but he was not native to Nazareth. Joseph was from Bethlehem, the city of David. Joseph was from Bethlehem, which is a shepherd's town, a shepherd's city. Its primary export were sheep for sacrifice. And so the order was you go back to your home country to be taxed, or hometown to be taxed. So Joseph was from Nazareth, but by way of Bethlehem, or from Bethlehem of Nazareth. So he was a Nazarene because that's where he was living, and that's where he was working, that's where he had set up his business, but he was from Nazareth. I mean, he was from Bethlehem. So he had to go back to his hometown, his family town, to be counted and taxed. So they were doing a census. They were counting. Caesar wanted to know how many people in my empire are taxable. So Joseph also had to be taxable. Because if he was poor, he would not have been expected to pay taxes. If he had no income, if he was a beggar, well, one, he would have had a hard time getting betrothed to Mary, but he would have not been taxable. He had to travel to his hometown with his pregnant wife because she was his wife at that point, just like Pastor Diana said on Sunday. Even though they had not consummated the marriage, she was his betrothed, she was his wife. She just happened to be nine months pregnant. <laughs> so they travel because now that she's part of his family, they both have to go. He couldn't go by himself. And they have to be counted and taxed based on their amount of wealth. So you would go to a publican. That's what a publican was, a tax collector. And he would weigh basically how much you were worth and then tax you accordingly. And he'd line his pockets with a little bit and send the rest back to Caesar. That's why everybody hated the publicans, because everybody knew the publicans ripped you off. We, well, we, got one like we, got, we kind of got something like that. And Joseph went up, verse 4, from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Being great with child. That's a term we need to bring back. <laughs> and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. 
And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swallowing clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, clearly the Bethlehem is busy because a lot of people have to go back to Bethlehem. And they're traveling slower than normal because he's got a nine-month pregnant woman with him. And even if she wasn't pregnant, he's got a woman with him. It's just harder to get anywhere on time. If you're married, you understand. <laughs> As my wife went through several scars at the door, leaving tonight. Uh, let me get back in the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't Christmas yet. I mean, you need to shut up. <laughs> so I'm going to come home with some boxes that's missing from under the tree. <laughs> so they, <laughs> wow. There were no, there was no room in the inn. So they went to the cleanest place they could find, which was a manger. And we know, I, I taught this a few years ago. Uh, the manger was a sterile location for birthing sacrificial lamps. It was, a, it was a cool, dry cave that, and because Bethlehem would have had several of these, because that was their main export. Most people didn't raise sheep. So when it was time to bring a lamb for the sacrifice at the temple, you would buy a Bethlehem sheep, because they were the best sheep in town. And <laughs> you, so Bethlehem had a bunch of shepherds and mangers. And the manger was, Every sheep wasn't born in the manger because you bred of your flock the best sheep to have the best lambs for sacrifice because God required the best lambs for sacrifice. No spot, no blemish, all that good stuff, right? So the manger, when your best lamb was about to have a calf, you took them into the manger because it was sterile. And it, it was protectable. Usually there was a tower on top of the manger where you could look out for wolves and things because sheep are most vulnerable when they're birthing calves. So you would put a tower on top with a guard that looked out over a hill so that you could keep an eye out on the flock and for any danger while the sheep was having the child. So the manger was sterile and it was safe. And it was an important aspect of Bethlehem economy, Bethlehem's economy. Joseph would know this because he's from there. So when there was no room in the inn, he took his wife to the one place he felt he could safely and cleanly birth a child, a manger. Now, the manger is also a stone trough for feeding that sheep. It's made of stone because, like Pastor Dan pointed out, and you know what? I was actually studying that prior to Sunday. So when you said that, I was like, mm, look at us being on the same page because I've been studying that. And I didn't know you were going to say it, but, you know, the, there's not a lot of wood in that region of the world. So Joseph being a carpenter of wood would have been un unlikely because wood is not the primary raw material there, stone is. That's why if you go there, most of the buildings are made of stone. And they use, they save the wood for things like doors and ceilings because you know, you can, they're a little more pliable, but most of the structure is made of stone because there's a whole bunch of stone there. So most carpenters are stonemasons or builders, workers of marble and, and various stones. But when it's translated into English, there's not a clear English definition for that. So there's a whole lot of trees in England. So they went with carpenter. And of course, the meaning of carpenter changed over time. So we just, and then we said a simple poor carpenter. Couldn't have been a rich carpenter. 
had to be the poorest carpenter. Like, there's nobody that works wood that's also got money. We just can't let them have money for some reason. It's crazy when you think about it. Because maybe even if he was a woodworker, why couldn't he be a wealthy one? Why couldn't he be a wood exporter? Nobody, but anyway. You just want your Jesus to be poor, so you have an excuse to be poor. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid. So now there is there is debate on the term angel of the Lord. It doesn't really matter. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are instances where the angel of the Lord is referring to the Lord himself. And then there are instances where it's referring to an angel sent by God to give a message. I won't go into all the times when one versus the other. It's, uh, this is written in Greek, so it's a little more complex to try to figure out which meaning is derived. So there's two sides to the story on whether it was God in angelic form or whether it was the angel Gabriel or an angel. One thing is for sure, it was an angel of the Lord. But the term angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament in several occasions where it's actually referring to God himself in a fleshly form. Um, but I need to do a whole class on just that. But in this case, it's most likely an angel, an actual angel angel. Um, and whether that is the case or not, doesn't really matter. But most likely it's an angel angel. And the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid. If you've ever seen an angel, it can scare you. <laughs> and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. That's an important line. We kind of glossed over it because, see, in, in Jewish culture, the Messiah is strictly a Jewish Messiah. He's got nothing to do with everybody else. So the birth of the Messiah being good tidings for all people automatically sets him apart from the Orthodox Jewish definition of the Messiah. He's got to be something for all mankind, not just the Jewish people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And of course, these are shepherds, so they know where the mangers are. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So they're declaring peace. Now here's what the Lord said to me. He said, these angels are declaring peace on earth which means they're declaring war on the kingdom of darkness. The word heavenly host in the Hebrew is sabaot, T-S-A-B-A-O-T. It refers, we always think of a choir of angels singing, glory to God in the highest. We see trumpets and beautiful angels flapping their wings, singing in harmony together. But that's actually not what those shepherds saw. That's why they were so afraid. What those shepherds saw, because the term sabaot in Hebrew means an army. It's a military force armed for battle. 
For the past 4,000 years, the kingdom of darkness has run the earth. Remember Daniel's 21 days? That was the heavenlies over the earth. If you had a prayer to get to heaven, it had to go through an entire demonic hierarchy that would block it, and God would have to send an angel to intervene, which is why everybody got communicated with through angels, because they had to fight their way to do anything. Or God himself would have to appear, cut covenant with someone, so that he could intervene like what he did with Abraham. All of these things are the norm for the past 4,000 years. You're in the Old Testament at this point. But the heavenly host have been waiting for their general to be born. They've been waiting, eagerly waiting, to take the fight to the devil. Because up to that point, the devil was operating in Adam's authority. He could do what he wanted in the atmosphere. That's why the Old Testament is so terrible. <laughs> it's a terrible place to live, the Old Testament. And only if, only if you had a covenant with God did you have any protection or any safety. Because if you had a covenant with God, God would intervene as long as you maintained your position in the covenant. But outside of a direct covenant with God himself, you had no divine protection. You had no guarantees to anything. The devil could do with you as he pleased. And he would. The Old Testament was a terrible place to live. That's why God and all the heavenly hosts are so excited for this moment. Because finally, the one who will lead this host to battle and victory has been born. And they all show up to recognize his birth. What those shepherds saw was not trumpets and a beautiful chorus of angels singing some harmony. No, they saw a military force. They saw in the spirit the army of heaven, the Sabaoth, ready to go to war with the kingdom of darkness. And in 33 years, they were going to get their fight. And they were ready. That's why they appear. That's why they mark this moment. They mark this moment because they've been waiting for this. Because they've had to wait on the sidelines and do little guerrilla attacks. Support this guy over there. You're going to support this prophet for a while. You're going to support this judge. So when Samson needs something, we, can, we jump in and do something for Samson. Or when David needs something, we jump in and do something for David. Or when Moses needs something, we can, one of us go down there and do something to the Egyptians. That's guerrilla warfare. That's not a takeover. That's just maintaining man's connection to God until we can take the earth back. But the general's just been born. The new king has just been born. The, the last Adam, they haven't seen an Adam in 4,000 years. See, they would have come to the aid of the last of the previous Adam if he had asked for it. But he didn't say nothing. He gave all his authority to the devil. And they had to sit around and watch this thing run ransack over this beautiful world that God made for man. But they finally get a chance to hit back. And if you've ever been in a fight and you get an opening to hit back, it's the best feeling in the world. You take it. You ever been in a fight, you can't wait. To get your lick back. Mm -hmm. You wake up. You can take a whole lot of damage. But if you get an opening and you see it, something comes alive. All the pain goes away. All the, the hurt, the soreness. You just need one clean shot. Mm -hmm. And they finally get it. And here's the thing about it. 
these angels, remember when Jesus, when they came to arrest him, and Jesus said, if I wanted to call 12 legions of angels, I could. These are them angels. They ready. Jesus is as aware of their presence as these, sh these shepherds get a glimpse of what Jesus is aware of. Jesus said, if I want to call 12 legions of angels right now, wipe all y'all out, I could do it. I'm telling you, this is Jesus talking. I'm telling you this so you don't think you arrested me. I'm going with you. I'm going with you because this is my responsibility. This is my job. This is what I came to do. Don't think you won. This is actually part of the plan. I'm supposed to be crucified. But if I look and tell these angels, I just give them one look and there's no more y'all. I can wipe all of this out. Twelve legions of angels is, what, 72,000 angels, roughly? A legion is, what, 6,000, something like that, five or 6,000. So Jesus knows what he's got with him all the time. And if you ever been somewhere and you ain't had nobody with you, you're scared. But if you go somewhere and you got somebody with you and the crowd is with you, 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 you poke your chest out a little bit. Jesus did not get taken. He gave himself up as yeah. the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. But these angels been with this man his whole, life. his whole life. And they were revealing themselves so that it could be recorded. Because watch what happens later. You got to understand, why did they show themselves to the shepherd? I'll tell you. And it came to pass, verse 15, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go into Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So the reason that we are reading this is because those angels appear to those shepherds. Jesus, this is not in red. Jesus didn't say this. We heard, we learned this from the shepherds. That's why they showed up to validate and verify that moment. In the spirit, they revealed themselves to some people who would know where a manger was and what a manger was so that they could go verify it and then spread it. So Luke, some 40, 50 years later, can go back to that town and ask some questions. And somebody, one of those shepherds, maybe, and if not, one of their kids or somebody from that town said, you know, we all know about those angels that showed up that night. And Luke said, tell me about it. Then he writes it down. That's how we know. Because Jesus didn't tell them. The angels revealed themselves. God planned everything so that we would know he's the one. He's, he's not just another kid who somebody going to claim to be the Christ. It's not the money he's going to walk around with. Because if you got money, you can make a lot of claims about yourself. It's those legions of angels that some complete strangers who have no connection to them saw for themselves and ran into town telling everybody else about. And when they found Jesus, they were the ones who found him in the manger, not the wise men. When they found Jesus, they confirmed, yep, that's him. The birth of Christ is the beginning 
of the church. It's the beginning of the war on the kingdom of darkness. Amen. Those same heavenly hosts that served Christ in his earthly ministry serve him now in his earthly ministry. But we are the body of Christ now. Amen. Those same, they didn't lose their assignment. They're not off their post. Their job is the same job it was when Jesus was walking the earth. Support whatever the administration of the kingdom of God in the earth requires in the spirit. Those are our angels now. They didn't lose their job. See, he don't need them in heaven. He's got a lot. And there are different hierarchies of angels doing different things. These are not drone room angels. These are not throne room angels. These are not cherubim. These angels are atmosphere angels. These are warriors. These are soldiers. These are not escorts. These are fighters. These are kick the demon out angels. These are the ones that when a man or woman of God stands in Christ's authority, I want to teach about the name of Jesus, but I'm trying to wait till the beginning of the year. But I'll give you just a little snippet because I don't know how much time I get. Okay, I got a few minutes. When you stand in Christ's authority, it's his authority that moves these angels. And when you're on assignment and you're standing in your authority, his authority given to you, I'm going to explain that in more detail when I teach about the name of Jesus. But when you stand in that authority, they respond to you exactly the same way they responded to Christ. So those 12 legions of angels that Jesus had access to when he needed, you have access to. The problem most of us have is we don't need 12 legions of angels. We need to get up out of bed and pray for an hour. You want to charge angels to do stuff that you're too lazy to do for yourself, and that's not there. You don't have any authority for that. Nope. See, the authority of the name of Jesus comes attached to the assignment and the character of the man whose name you have. And outside of that, the angels don't have to do anything. If you left home late because you woke up late, you can't charge your angels to open the traffic for you. <laughs> we, we, we charge our angels to do everything. <laughs> you should have got up on time. Angels move this traffic out the way so I could be on time. No, it doesn't. No, because Jesus would have got up on time. Jesus would have went to bed on time and had a good breakfast. That's what Jesus would have done. You want angels to, to make your bad decisions go away. That's not what they do. But when you walk in your authority, the same way. Okay, I'm going to just because we're talking about Jesus, right? So the name of Jesus. The name Jesus is not rare, especially in the Bible. It's a common name. It's actually the name Joshua, but in Aramaic, right? And I always wondered if God chose to name his son Joshua because of his respect for Joshua, you know? Uh, because when everybody else had no faith, Joshua and Caleb alone led the children of Israel into the promised land. And when everybody else was turning on them, Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so I wonder if that made a marked impression on the father. And he said, I'm going to name my son after him. 
I don't know. But the name Joshua in Hebrew culture is known for the name of the deliverer. Because while Moses led them out of Egypt, Joshua led them into their own kingdom. There would be no kingdom of Israel without Joshua. So he's the one who conquered the, the Canaanites and kicked out the Philistines and all that good stuff. You know, it, there is no kingdom of Israel without Joshua. So he's a Jewish hero. Um, but the name of Jesus, when we talk about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, carries the entire reputation of that man. And when we use it, we can't use it lightly. We actually can't use it unless we have set ourselves up to be Christ-like. It's not something you just have and you can fling around until it works on something. The name of Jesus is actually meant to be a standard by which you hold yourself. You hold yourself against that standard. And then where you fall short, you depend on the Holy Ghost to bring you up to speed. Then when you use the name of Jesus, it works. A lot of times, the reason why we, we say Jesus a lot, we're trying to invoke Jesus to come in and intervene. And that's not what the name of Jesus is for. You're not summoning Jesus like a spell. I'm going to say Jesus till Jesus shows up. Jesus heard you the first time. He's not, that's not how that works. The name of Jesus is your tool for fashioning yourself in the likeness of Jesus so that when the devil sees you, he sees Jesus. Because if the devil sees you, he know all the junk you bring in with you. He's scared of Jesus because when he saw Jesus, he saw them 12 legions of angels and he can't beat one of them. He couldn't beat one angel. He can't beat legions of them. And he's already been whooped. <laughs> he knows he got no hands. But he's scared of Jesus. You want him to be afraid of you because Jesus is over there. And you know Jesus. And he's not scared of you because you know Jesus. Because there's a whole lot of folks that knew Jesus burning in hell right now. But if you look like him, and you sound like him, and you act like him, and you talk like him, and things respond to you the same way they respond hey, to him, you know, been there, been here a while, man. <laughs> Now the devil's going to tremble in his boots when he sees you. Right. But you got to get a revelation of what the name of Jesus is. Amen. Because it's not just the, those syllables. Those syllables by themselves, there's a lot of dudes named Jesus ain't got no power. <laughs> <laughs> That's not where the power is. The name of Jesus is Jesus in name form. And you got to get a revelation of that before it'll produce for you. But going back to the Christmas story. <laughs> I'm trying to save that for, for the new year. Uh, the celebration of this time is not just Jesus' birthday, it's our birthday. This is, a, this is a pivotal moment in the, you know, I was thinking about this little church, we, this little building that we have. And, you know, you go to other sanctuaries and they're much larger and they're much fancier and things. And the Lord says, yeah, he says, yeah, but families do well in family rooms because they're intimate. Families do well in rooms where they can be right next to each other. God has no problem with small spaces. 
we do. Mm -hmm. God loves family to be next to each other. Now we want a bigger space. We will have one. I'm not speaking against that at all. But the reason we can't, it can't be a competitive reason. Because if you take a, a poorly constructed family and put them in a mansion, they'll never see each other. If you take a strong family and put them in a one bedroom and there's so much love and so much peace. And I'd rather have that than a bad family in a mansion. Because you can grow a family until you need a mansion, which is what we're doing. We're using this place to grow until we need a mansion. But we don't need a mansion just so we can say we got one. Because then you got to pay them bills. And we, anyway, then we got to pay them bills. And I ain't doing that again. <laughs> Not doing that again. So, this, this, this intimate space, I'm not going to call it a small space anymore. It's intimate. It's a family room for the church. Mama's got her special chair. We got a Christmas tree in the corner. You know, this is a family room for the family. Mm -hmm. And around this time of year when everybody wants to be around family, it's good to remember that this is your family too. Amen. And the Christmas story is the beginning of our family. You have to own it. Yes, it's the celebration of the birth of our Savior, our Lord, our everything. But, it's, but his birth marks the beginning of who we are today. So have that in mind this Christmas. Have that in mind when you think about those host of angels. See warriors with swords, not babies with trumpets. Because there are no baby angels. Have you ever tried to fight a baby? It's very easy. <laughs> Babies got no hands. They're very easy to beat up. You can just flip them. They can't even flip back. You can, right, you can just hold them. They got little stubby arms. God's angels are not babies. And babies with trumpets is just ridiculous because the last thing you give a baby <laughs> is a trumpet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're loud enough already. But anyway, thank you, Lord. <laughs>